thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gone to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Jose Antonio Vargas, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 165 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Anna Hoagland. A little bit about Anna. Anna Hoagland is a psychotherapist in private practice with an MSW from Smith College School of Social Work and an MFA from UC Irvine. She lives in Vermont. Anna, how are you tonight? It's good to talk to you. I am well. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. So, you know, like I said, the bio is fairly short, but I know there's a lot more to fill in. And I'm uh, looking forward to talking to you. The book is The Long Answer. And I would love to uh, have you, you know, shout out where to buy it. Yeah, I don't know if you have any tour things or anything that you really want to shout out, you know, in particular bookstores, like I said. Yeah, you can buy it pretty much anywhere. Uh, the distrish distribution has been great because it's with Penguin Random House or it's a, it's a imprint of Penguin Random House. So they mm-hmm. have a wide distribution. Um of course, always support your local bookstore when possible. Okay. So my local bookstore is the Bennington Bookshop. Uh-huh. So I try to order through there when possible. But whoever is near and dear to you, that's who That's who I would love for you to support. I like that. The near and the dear. There you go. I would love to know about some of the beginnings of, of reading and writing and um, growing up, like you said, before we started recording, you know, pretty close in that area of Vermont. But like, who who were you reading? What were you reading? Um, you know, were books and magazines and, and the written word a huge part of your childhood? Or was that something that came maybe later in life? I had, I would say, kind of an interrupted path toward becoming a writer. I was, as a child, really wanted to be a writer. I was reading constantly. And then I, I lost my way with it. And I decided it wasn't possible for me. And I should just focus on other things. So for like 10 years, I would say between 
maybe age 15, age 25, I wasn't writing at all. I wasn't even really reading fiction. Um, but as a child, I was reading, I was reading a lot and trying, I was just kind of, um, obnoxious and I would go to the library and just ask for the biggest book. Um, I felt like the biggest meant the smartest. Therefore the best, right, 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 right. Therefore the best, um, which is not, you know, a wise way to go about choosing your <laughs> books. However, it led me to some really cool books that I, that I be, were staples of my childhood that I have yet to meet anyone else who ah. loved um, there's this, I mean, some like, like true girls of Brooklyn, okay. um, you know, that is widely beloved as it should be. Um, but there's this one book called the hounds of the Morgan that mm. I think is popular in Ireland, but nowhere else. And <laughs> I just loved it. It's this really scary tale of a brother and a sister being chased by this like evil witch. Whoa. The Morgan. I loved it. <laughs> oh man well so the biggest and the best so you're just you'd read in tomes so you so you've read war and peace no i mean uh, the biggest the biggest that the librarian who i was talking to would would allow so kind of the biggest in the children's section yeah kind of the big tomes of of like canonized literature i've read remarkably few of i just read anna karenina i haven't read war and peace i have i just read anna karenina last year i didn't take english in college or anything so i sort of missed a lot of the things that writers should have read by this point in life infinite jest i've not read infinite jest however <laughs> I've been, i have been close to people who have read it and talked about it a lot does that count <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I will I mean, read I, it. No, I, I, I have not read either. I have very complicated feelings about David Foster Wallace. Um, but as I mean, do I, right, yeah. right. I mean, I mean, his, his essays to me are just incredible. Yes. Um, but obviously there's, you know, very, very problematic. Um, but yeah, it sounds like, I mean, infinite Jest is kind of the old joke, right? Like everyone, you know, everyone's got it on their, their bedside table, but no one's read it. And, you know, I felt like everyone in my MFA had read it. So I, I didn't have to. By you know? osmosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure I, I would like to read it at some point. I just, um, other things keep cutting in line. Huh. So um, who then, as you got into MFA, where, where did you take your, you said UC Irvine, right? So what mm -hmm. led you to like the, the MFA? I mean, was there was there a high school moment, eureka moment or moments in, in college, high school where you're like, I, I can do this, I want to do this, or, or someone really, you know, validated your work? More the last that you just said, a mm. validation that was really appreciated. And I I didn't think it was possible for me. And I had, yeah, like I said earlier, sort of given up on that idea. And I, but I, I did start writing again later in college and while I was in grad school for social work. Mm. And very secretive, like I wouldn't tell anybody and I would just write these little scenes at night and I just enjoyed it. It was just like a little secret pleasure of mine. Yeah. And then I met my, who became my husband, um, a boy at the time, and he was trying to be a writer in earnest. And, and he was really the first like young person I had met. We were 22 when we met, who was really trying to be a writer and oh. It felt very permissive to me and he would just share, he was so open and he still is, he, he would share these large chunks of what his 
I mean, I, I would ask him for it. He wasn't just like, you know, throwing them at me. And eventually I felt very safe and loved by him and decided to give him we the joke early in our relationship was that I would give him 3% of whatever amount he gave me. (laughs) And he was, we actually weren't dating, I guess at the time, but I felt a very close connection with him very quickly. And he was very encouraging, but not just encouraging. He was Mm -hmm. also telling me like where he felt like it could be stronger. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, it was critical too. And I really felt respected by that and felt like I wanted nothing more than to just go back and make the piece better. And then I would have like a little workshop with, you know, my husband and one other person. And then eventually started applying to community workshops and then decided I wanted to try to get an MFA. Dang, what a milestone in the relationship, right? For some, it's like meeting the the family for you is more than 3%, 3.2%. You can read and man, just getting that feedback. That's incredible. It's just so cool to see, uh, you know, have a couple that supports each other like that, you know, builds each other up. Because yeah, I mean, the workshop can be pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. The traditional I, workshop model. I have really mixed feelings about it because it was helpful for me. Like I did need, I think that I'll talk about the MFA because I think community workshops are a slightly different mm. vibe. MFA I felt was, I mean, I left a better writer than I went in I left a better reader than I went in Mm -hmm. so that was my my goal I did learn a lot um but I also feel like it was as important for me to leave as it was for me to go Mm. I needed to give it the attention that it had been wanting of me I needed to be in a place where everyone was taking it really seriously and then right as it was ending I felt like I need to be in a place where people aren't taking it so seriously all around me all the time. And Mm. just kind of like, I needed to learn a lot of craft and then forget it. Yeah. And just write what I wanted to write and not have to worry about workshop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that makes sense that the progression to that, it, it, uh, I feel like, I feel like that it, the writing is like in the room with us is in the zoom call it. It's like its own entity, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh man. Well, I mean, obviously your writing must have been no, no, you know, you must have been no slouch of a writer even before MFA. I mean, UC Irvine is one of the top, one of the most competitive in the country, right? I was shocked to be accepted. (laughs) Truly surprised. Um, (laughs) I had been writing, but not too long. I mean, in terms of like seriously trying to Mm -hmm. write for like a year beforehand. Um, And I've, I, Imagine, because I just, because I trust Michelle and the, the people who accepted me, Michelle Atiole, um, that there was some germ of something that I couldn't see. But mm. I look at my application and the first things I submitted to workshop and I'm just kind of mortified <laughs> by <funny>. them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think work, I think workshop works when you are in a place where you're, you're really open to learning and you haven't really solidified kind of what, I mean, hopefully you never totally solidify what kind of writer you want to be, but I was really just wanting to learn and wanting to grow and that, so it was a good time for yeah. me. Well, I, mean, I guess it's natural for most people to emulate, you know, especially when they're starting out or fairly novice, like who, who were, I mean, I guess even into up to today, like who are some of the writers maybe who you discovered in college and MFA, even up to today are just thrilling, but also you know, put you in awe. 
Uh, so many people. Um, <laughs> I happen to have a stack right here, actually, from an interview I did recently where I was told to bring a stack. Yeah. So it's still on my desk, so I'm, which is nice. I can just kind of look at it. There it is. Um, I mean, Alice Monroe is okay. someone I always turn to. Elena Ferrante. Yeah. Um, she's someone I discovered later. Like, Wait, you know who she is? You know who she is? Elena Oh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I thought you were about to drop a big one on us here. Like, oh, no, 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 no. Everyone, okay. I have an announcement. I, no. Okay. Um, that, I, if I did, I would not tell you. Anyway. Oh, oh dang. Good for keep you. Keep it a secret as she wishes. Nice. Um, but no, I'm not in a position to have any information like that. Uh, I discovered her writing, I should say. There you go. Uh, later in the MFA. So she wasn't an early influence, but she's someone I turn to a lot now. Mm-hmm. W.J. Sabald. Okay. Thomas Bernhard, who a lot of people don't know him as much, but he's he's amazing. He's this is the loser by Thomas Bernhard. Mm. Very crotchety Austrian writer who just writes the same book over and over again. And I love <laughs> it. He's not for everyone, but I yeah. adore him. Huh. I didn't have like, I mean, mentioned Derek Foster Wallace. I feel like people who a lot of the people in my cohort and writers I know had like one person yeah. who they were really, really into and would read and reread and emulate. Mm-hmm. Dave Foster Wallace is one of those people for sure that comes up again and again. Um, I feel like Otessa Mosfeg is one of those people. Mm. They're kind of like 10 writers that I would just hear over and over again would be like these huge influences on right. my cohort. And I really didn't have one person like that or even like three people like that and I felt like something was wrong with me like I hadn't found my my you know writing mama Mm. (laughs) inspiration yet yeah and I feel now that that was actually maybe not the worst thing sure to have um I was influenced by so many people but I wasn't like trying to emulate one person and and then have to unlearn that emulation yeah yeah yeah. Um, I felt like I was lucky and that I, I didn't have to unlearn that. Well, I mean, your work is your work is very unique in in the long answer. And it's like, I mean, there's there's that one really short section, I don't know, three or four pages. The other ones are 60, 70. You know, that one is is angry in capital letters. And um, yeah, there's just a different styles, but it all comes together in a, in a cohesive unit for sure. So I got to think that has something to do with the fact that you read widely. You weren't just, you know, reading Infinite Jest 10 times in a row or something like that. <laughs> I like writers who I feel like do whatever the book needs it to do. And like, sometimes that changes genre and form and is novelly. Like I really like Mm. novelly books and stories that kind of go in places you wouldn't expect. And it doesn't mean that they're all successful to me. I mean, there are books that I find do that a lot and don't, really work for me but it doesn't even matter because Mm. I know that like oh that's possible like that person did that really cool weird Mm. thing Mm. and I feel like when you're doing weird for weirdness's sake or you know subverting form just for subverting form's sake I can kind of feel that falseness and I don't you know that's not really the effect I want to go for but I like when books follow what the what their writing demands which usually means like maybe going in a little bit of a weird Place. And that was definitely the case writing this book. I it like was no longer an option for me to like keep writing in the exact same right. like the content 
didn't fit into that form for mm-hmm. that section. Mm-hmm. So, and then I kind of went back to it a little bit, but yeah. there had to be a breakage, I think. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know how, I mean, as a psychotherapist, like I'd love to know how your work in your, your writing work informs your profession and vice versa. Mm. You know, I'm always asked the other way around. So I'm going to try to, I'm always asked, how does your um, therapy work influence your writing? Yeah. Um, So I have kind of thought about that more than how my writing influences my therapy work. Um, And I would have to think more about it, but just off the top of my head, they're really not that different parts of my brain in that they're both really based in listening Mm. and language and knowing when to interject and when to move and when to kind of take a step back. And Mm -hmm. I, I find that they are really helpful. It's really helpful for me to have both in a day. Um, because writing is so you're just so in your head and your story and not talking to anyone mm-hmm. and unless I'm interrupted which you know then I go into a rage <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but you just want I want like total solitude total silence and when I had I had like six months where I took off my therapy practice after the book came out I just mm. I was able to take a break and really focus on writing and so I did that And it was great and like such a privilege to be able to do that. But I chose to go back to therapy a little bit because I didn't realize how much I needed to then kind of turn away from myself and toward Mm. other people and other people's problems and other things that they're upsetting about. And I mean, financially and all that stuff, it's helpful to take some pressure off the writing. Sure. But I didn't realize how much I needed to be lifted out of myself too, after a couple hours of just like in my brain. I got to think, I mean, I got to think that this would have, if this was ever a thing for you, it would have been, you know, it would have come out of you with all of your training, but like, do you ever feel like you see your, your, your clients, your patients as like stock figures, you know what I mean? Kind of like archetypes. (laughs) Um, Well, I don't really see them as archetypes because they're so complicated um, I mean, I think like the closer you get to anyone, the less archetypal they become, right, right. but they definitely have interesting stories yeah, and things about them that inspire me a lot. And I have no characters based on clients or anything mm-hmm. like that, but I, I do, there is like a way of telling stories that mm-hmm. clients and cause they're human humans have, uh, that I find really appealing to listen to. And I try to do it in my writing to the best I can where people will like summarize whole years and then like drop into scene and direct dialogue. And then they'll like go back to summary, skip years. And that's so hard to do as a writer. But then if you're like, I feel like listening to people do that all day Mm. um, for years and years and years um, has helped me to, to do that. Okay. In my yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I asked the questions artfully as I wanted to, I guess I'm thinking like that maybe you, you would be hearing a story and almost like putting in the rest. Cause you've, 
you know, from previous times, you might be like, oh, it must be this. But like you said, you're obviously more more than obviously you're aware that people are so complicated and, you know, you're not going to fill in the ending before you know the ending or fill in the rest. So that makes sense. I do feel though that there is, I feel like archetype wasn't probably the right word for this, but I do feel like I'm not alone. Like whatever I'm dealing with, hmm. whatever secret, awful thoughts I'm having, kind of shadow thoughts, forbidden thoughts that I might otherwise be really ashamed of. I don't hmm. feel very ashamed of because I hear them all day. And I know that maybe the exact content of the thought isn't the same, but these kind of forbidden thoughts are, you know, shared by everyone has yeah. their form of that. Yeah. Um, and when I was writing about grief, I felt pretty emboldened to write about some of the, what we would think of as uglier sides of the grieving process, like envy or rage or these thoughts, like I want all, I don't like, I hate all babies, <laughs> you know, after you've lost a baby, like mm-hmm. they're not thoughts I'm proud of, but they happened. And I felt like they were, I wanted to show a full portrait of grief and kind of all of its ugliness and beauty and resilience and also just weakness. Sometimes you don't want to be resilient. You just want to be right. weak and bitter. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, so, so the book is the long answer and, and like, you, I mean, thank you for sharing that, that part. And, and like you said, there are all kinds of grieving and it's a, and it's a different type of grieving, right. Than maybe some people are used to. Um, it has to do with all the different ways in which there have been losses of of babies, right? Through through the, through the characters, some going back in time, even the main character, her mom, right? And some of her experiences mirroring her daughter's own. And so, I just love to know about maybe like seeds for the book. I mean, did it did it come together as like you talk about scenes? I mean, did it come together as like one essay or a short story, and then it became, hey, I can do four or five and six characters like this. It really came together I had a vision of like a four part like four-ish part of novel that each part would be centered around a different woman Mm. um, but all be held together by this this narrator curator Anna yeah based on myself so I had that in mind and I I did deviate from it a bit because when I started writing the book I was pregnant with my first pregnancy and everything was going fine as far as I knew and all the tests knew. Mm. And so I had this image of the narrator just being, you know, taking in these stories that could be helpful for her in her mother becoming journey. Um, And then in real life, I lost my pregnancy at five months and I knew that I could not write the book that I was had set out to write with this woman who continues on have a pregnancy and a baby. It just was, um, it just felt like an insult to what I was actually going through. So the narrator, Anna being in the kind of background gathering stories was no longer an option for, for her, like her, her story kind of came in and interrupts the contract. I thought of it as like a contract, like this is Anna, she's in the background. Mm. And then she breaks that contract because you know, her own expectations were broken. And then she kind of finds a new relationship to the stories after that breakage mm. is my hope. So I, I didn't 
so yes and no, like I had this set up and it is structurally quite closely modeled on, where is it? Uh, the Emigrants by W.J. Okay. G.J. I'm tired. W.J. Sebald. Um, but he, this narrator stays in the background for all four. Uh-huh. Um, so I did, I did say to it and I, I bent it as it needed to bend. Mm. Well, yeah. So, so sorry for your loss. No, thank you. And um, I do have a daughter now. I want to say sometimes people read the book and they're like, are you, do you have, are you okay? Do you have a child now? And I do have a two and a half year old right now who's sleeping, you know, yeah. over, which is explains my fatigue and um, why the, the wound isn't as fresh right now. I had the loss right. and I mean, it's, I'll always grieve it in a, right. in different ways, but um, it was in 2019. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you made that point with, um with Anna's, Anna's mom's Ruth in the book. Mm-hmm. You made that point with Ruth, you know, that that's something that you always grieve, but there is much, much happiness as well. So, you know, Elizabeth is the part one is Elizabeth focused. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, right. And yeah. so it's, it was so interesting. Cause I was kind of like, I was, I was like, okay, what's, what's going on here? Like, this is cool is, you know, so Mar- how, how do you pronounce it? Margaret, Margaret, Margot, uh, Margot. Margo. Oh, wow. It's French. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Margot and, you know, the narrator who I don't, I don't think we know her name is Anna until midway through the book or so, but she, yeah, you know, Right. I think yeah. I dropped it once early on, but yeah, it's easy. Yeah. Right. And so she, you know, she's definitely very much in, I mean, not, not very much in the background, but she and her sister, Margot are all, are both pregnant and there seems to be an icy relationship. Um, and at first, you know, cause oh, I was more about the age gap and I was always kind of like the annoying little sister. Um, but Margot seems to be trying, but Anna's kind of always like, not sure about maybe her motives. Elizabeth is kind of seen as kind of like usurping the sisterly relationship. Is that safe to say? I, yeah, I felt like I, I was interested in the a character of Elizabeth becoming more sisterly with Anna's sister than Anna was. Yeah. And kind of Margot and Anna, neither one of them have really close female friends. And mm-hmm. Anna feels like if, if Margot is going to have one really close female friend, like it, it will be me, her sister. Right. And, it it is not. It's this yeah. woman, Elizabeth, who she meets late in life. I mean, you know, as yeah. far as friends go, like early thirties, not like mm-hmm. you know five. Yeah, <laughs> cold war is not the right term because it's it's not a war. It's not you know horrible, but I mean, it's more cold than anything, right? It's, it's not. Cold. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I mean, there was never. I mean, there, that we know of, there was never any huge breach or brooch or you know brooch of breach of trust and all that. It was just kind of like we just don't really talk, and that's kind of a self perpetuating thing, right? Um, yeah. But Elizabeth is described as, you know, seeming to kind of have it all together in, in some ways, but she's very blunt in describing that quote and describing like her pregnancy. And we, we later find out about her having, you know, had a, a husband before. And we find out about her story with Sam. And it was kind of like a a, a, a young college relationship. There was a little bit of an age difference, but it, they seemed to be, it seemed to be based on trust and, and, you know, there was definitely some infatuation, but she describes how in her case, she lost her baby at 14 weeks and Sam fell apart. Mm-hmm. Right. He, he changed, he was quote hardened. Um, and in the end she really saw like, Oh man, I didn't know him as well as I thought I did. So that's my long way of getting at, like, I always thought it was interesting how you did in the book where, you know, even with like, is it Danny, 
with with um, Corey later on, and he's young, but just like how much people's histories informed the way they react to grief and not or not. I mean, it's kind of an obvious statement, but I guess I wonder about Elizabeth and was she kind of settling again is not exactly the word, but was she settling for her second marriage? Was it just like, Hey, I want to have a baby and he's a good solid guy. Like, how do you feel that she went into that relationship and into motherhood? I probably, I, I feel like it's a little bit of an open question for me in some ways, because we do get to know her so much better, but we, there's still a little bit of a barrier to her. Like she, she does share so much of her history um, and this kind of one burst of, mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you the story basically. Right, never again. Right. And so we, we get the sense that we know her so well, but I think there are still these gaps. Um, and I'm not sure that she fully knows where you're where she's coming from in that marriage her second marriage because mm-hmm. she's still in some ways recovering from yeah. her first marriage which was young it wasn't terrible but it was complicated and there was a loss really early on and she was kind of ambivalent about the pregnancy to begin with and mm-hmm. he had put so much on the idea of a child mm-hmm. um i think that she found somebody who was better matched for her. And I think she knows that in her second marriage, someone who was a little bit more on equal footing, she was maybe in a slightly more stable place. Um, But, and now that I I wrote that become before becoming a parent. uh, And now that I am a parent, I see that, you know, of course it's good to have as strong a foundation as you can with your partner and managing stress, conflict, all of those things. But having a child is going to change. Yes. No matter how long you've been together, no matter what circumstances you've been together, Mm -hmm. it's going to bring up old, old, old stuff from before you even met. I mean, your own childhoods really. And I don't know that any couple is can fully prepare for that you know Mm -hmm. because you don't even know what's going to come up right in that time yeah like you talk about it 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 obviously brings up a lot of feelings and and feelings and histories among the couple between the couple but also in this case like you said with the sisters where um you know they have their own losses throughout throughout the book and it's just like not a competition but um i think it's i think motherhood often and parenthood often is a competition right not even just not even you know, when once the kids are seven or eight and schools and little league and all of that. And I guess it, you know, starts from, starts from the beginning. Yeah. Oh gosh. I haven't gotten to the little league phase yet. I'm hoping it's not so bad, but I, I mean, with the sisters losing, they kind of take turns. Yeah. Um, and I, I hoped to capture that there can be a lot of hurt and anger and envy and comparisons drawn when no one has done anything wrong. Right. You know, it's just, and in some ways it makes it harder because you can't mm-hmm. fight about it and you can't, no one has wronged the other person. It's just, you know, one person lost a child and one person didn't. And that's just going to bring up so many feelings. And for the Anna character, she already has kind of an inferiority Mm-hmm. complex uh and jeal- some jealousy around her sister and then her sister has these two healthy children and Anna has lost her baby and so you know the Margot character hasn't done anything wrong 
she's just been luckier. Right. And I thought that was, I was interested in, as I was going through something similar myself, um, how the Anna character could grapple with all those feelings that don't really have a good place to go. Yeah. Part one ends with, um, I thought it was really interesting. It was, it was a flashback to when Elizabeth, to when Anna first met Elizabeth in Alaska, which is where Margot lives. And there was like a barbecue and in the, towards the end of the book, we you know, Anna looks at it differently. Like, Hey, that was nice of her to think of me. Right. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing. Right. But, um, but there's this son who's kind of, kind of easy to, to dislike a little bit. And the father definitely, and there's this language being spoken. I'm not sure. I think maybe it's South African English or something like that, but it ends up being Finnish. And so the narrator's really focused. Narrator makes a point to say, Anna makes a point to say, I'm, I wasn't focused on Elizabeth so much at that party, more so this, this mother and son. And this idea of like that mother child bond, I guess. Right. Where it's like, he, the father didn't even know that she had been teaching him her tradition, her, her native language of Finnish. And mm -hmm. it, I'm not explaining it very well, but it was just such a cool and interesting part. Like just thinking of that, that bond that is obviously unique to say the least. Did you have any real life, um, you know, connections or real life um, Genesis for that story, that part of the story? That Oh, I did. I did hear about that happening um, with the language mm. piece. And I just, it really stuck with me that, and this dad wasn't even like that absent. Right. Um, he just kind of was clueless about, and they would mostly speak it when he wasn't around. So, um, and I, I could just, I just, I can't even quite articulate why that dynamic was so interesting to me. I usually write about things that I can't quite articulate hmm. why they're interesting. Cause if I could, then it loses interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This idea of this like secret language that I mean, it's obviously a real language, but in the context of that home, like Finnish, are you sure? Are you sure, that's a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> Finland. Sure. What? Uh, I mean, most of them speak English, I think, but um, uh, I think it's a language and the child not ever hearing it anywhere else, but with his mother potentially kind of having this secret language that then atrophies because the father feels right left out and i i imagined and it was kind of like a minor key to end that section with i i imagined that couple and that family as something of what elizabeth and sam's family might look like if they had not had the loss and continued to be pregnant or mm. you know continued had the baby continued to be married and ended up in this marriage with a child in which they weren't communicating i mean in this sense it's like literally not communicating right 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 but right. I think many of us, you know, may as well be speaking different languages to huh. each other. That's for sure. Especially when your children are young and it's so chaotic. And no. I mean, my husband says something to me and I'll just not retain it at all. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. that was all the time. <laughs> chaotic is the word. <laughs> Yeah, so part two with Corey is like 66 pages-ish. And I was like, dang, like uh, towards the end of it, I was like, man, this is this is such a page turner. That that section was so, <laughs> right? So um, so Anna meets her at yoga and mm -hmm. 
Corey seems to be out of place. You know, it's in Irvine and, you know, very, um, very, very rich <laughs> folks as well. And she yeah. just didn't seem to fit in. Wasn't even sure that she was pregnant. She's, you know, skinny. She's a lot younger than most of the mothers and all within their, um, with, within their, their walk back to where she was staying with her, with her sister is where we get all the story. It's safe to say that she, she didn't grow up with a lot of money. She and her sister, and so I wonder about how, and about how her family situation you think maybe informed her her actions. Mm, I think in every way. I mean, uh-huh. so her her mother, it was never very stable to begin with. Um, but her mother dies when she's uh, a young teen, um, or I don't remember. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I imagine her like you know pre preteen yeah and her father leaves them so it's basically Corey, her older sister leah and then they have twins that are a couple younger years younger so it's four young sisters uh living in this apartment in riverside and it's just a cauldron in my mind of tension and uh it's just ripe for a, a young boy to come in and Corey is much more into, you know, wanting to have sex and she just is much more boy crazy for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. But the boy that enters is is interested in her sister, Leah. And I had, I had fun writing that section. I, it was fun in that it was kind of a departure from what I was writing before in terms of more like there's more sex yeah. Uh, like, and I, it was a real challenge. I mean, it was, it was a fun challenge to write from somebody who is quite different from me, Corey, and different circumstances uh, in life and just a different set of challenges. But I felt very close to her. I can't really explain hmm. why. I feel like I had met. Maybe this is where clients come in. Actually, I had tr- I have treated a lot of clients her age who have been in similar situations and felt such a fondness for them, and also just in awe of what how scrappy they can be and like how they can survive these incredible things at such a young age. When I felt like this pampered little puppy who like had her time with things. I was really kind of intimidated and impressed with a lot of them. And Corey is, is one of, you know, that kind of person to me. And I also just really wanted to challenge myself to write more sex and like sexy tension and sexy scenes, which is not, I mean, I love reading that stuff, but I, I, it's hard to write. So I, I find myself like flash cut to morning kind mm-hmm. of writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, right. But I felt like this wasn't an option in this yeah. Yeah. section. So for a while, the sub, the sub in my computer, it was like Anna Wright Sex was like the name of the uh, of the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so you know, so Danny is the one who enters the family. He becomes he's like big man on campus in many ways, but he seems to be seems to be so humble and such a good guy. Yeah. And so caring and so so helpful. He comes from money. He's gonna be going to USC and all that. Um, he's a great, great guy until he's not. Yeah, I felt I really feel for Danny. I think that there's a way to look at him that is not 
favorable and that he, you know, impregnates one sister and sleeps with the other. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, do it. and then leaves them both. I'll lose some goodwill. Yes. I mean, that's not upstanding. However, I found in writing him that I just really felt for him too. Oh. Like, you know, he's also young and not that that's an excuse. So I think that, you know, young people are, you know, what they're doing and more than we give them credit for, but sure. uh, in terms young, in terms of his life is ahead of him as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's, he's faced with really big challenges and he's, you know, presented with 17 year old boys presented with sex of a, you know, 15 year old, girl literally next to him in bed I think that's like a hard thing to it's sympathetic like I could Mm. I could sympathize with that impulse Mm -hmm. to want to engage in that even though uh you know the most upstanding thing wouldn't wouldn't be to do that but I feel for I feel like he's kind of a tragic character in my Mm. in my mind yeah well so in the same way you know they Leah is mothering the the kids from her relationship with Danny, the twins, from, um, with another another man, and again seems to be kind of like with Elizabeth and her her new situation. You know, things seem to be good financially; they're good. Seem to be with a good person, but there's a lot, a lot that goes on, and just um, I mean, that could be like I don't know, a novella by itself or something. Yeah, the, it's just a page turner, and it's like wow. So the writing was, like you said, a departure from what you're used to, but uh, but you nailed it. Thank you. Yeah. With with part three is, is is a very short one and that's no blue. And that's similar to what you talked about with like, that's like the, the narrator, like really inserting her story in. Mm-hmm. Um, And the first, the first sentence is, is very moving. First two to say the least it's quote, I know what they mean now when they say they lost the baby. And there's even a comma after now. I know what they mean now, comma, when they say they lost the baby they mean they don't know where the baby is. And I just feel like that could be taken that, especially that second sense could be taken in four or five different ways, you know, mm. the idea of where the baby is. And, and just that to me, what I really got out of that chapter with, there's a lot of obvious rage and, and justified rage and rage that, you know, you can't, you cannot emphasize with unless you're the, the, the mother, a mother in a similar situation, but we can sympathize with, and there, yeah, there's there's anger. There's capital letters. The diction is very aggressive. There's there's references to Medea, right? And just mm-hmm. anger, anger, anger. And the end of that section, which again is short, is quote, "Let me write this another way," and that leads into section four. But uh, you know what I really got from section three and four, and, and so much of the book is that, and I'm not saying anything new. We as Americans, we we don't know how to grieve. Yeah. And doubly so, right? If it's if it's for a miscarriage or a loss of a baby. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I I still find it so validating when people say we don't know how to grieve. It's so, it's, there's nothing truer and you don't, I find that people who have been initiated into grief, it feels like a real initiation to me, Mm -hmm. Uh, no matter what the kind of loss was, is they all feel that way. Like Mm -hmm. no one knows how to talk to you. Right. No one knows what to say. No one, everyone's so afraid of saying the wrong thing. They don't say anything. Mm-hmm. They run away because they think you want privacy when really you might not, you might want connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a long way to go in that respect of just knowing how to 
let people grieve and what, what that looks like. I right. think other cultures do a better job than yeah. us. That's for sure. Yeah. I was listening to somebody recently who lost his son, like, like I think teenager, young twenties. And he was talking about somebody who, I mean, literally like walked awkwardly up to him. Like, you know, you could just see this person coming up to him, to the, to the grieving father awkwardly. And basically said something like, I don't know what to say, but how great is that though? That's something. Yeah, I totally. I yeah. feel so much more comfortable now that I've been through grief that right. just saying, I don't know what to say, or I know there's something I can say, but I'm right. not going to run away. And I'm right. I err more on the side of checking in exactly too much or sending something that they might not want, but just because I know now what it feels like to get receive those gestures and mm-hmm. how much they mean to me, even if I didn't you know, use the candle that they gave me, you know, that's, doesn't matter. It was the right. fact it's obviously, you know, cliche. Fact. The thought is what, is what says that yeah. they're not afraid of what you're going through. And it's hard not to be afraid. I mean, I get, I get it. I get why yeah. people would be quiet or not know what to say or not say anything. Oh yeah. But, and I had been there too. I mean, especially before yes. I was much more likely to kind of give so much space, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for my own comfort, um, maybe thinking it was for theirs as well, but definitely Mm -hmm. for my own. Yeah. So with, with, with part four, which is, you know, it goes back and forth with Anna and her mother, Ruth, her mother, Ruth had, had lost her pregnancy, but in a different way where, where Jane, you know, the the name they gave the baby, the, 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 the pregnancy wasn't viable. Right. And there was also the story of how Anna's father had gone through cancer at a really young age, probably twenties. Right. Yeah. Like late twenties. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, with, and there's just, there's the, I wish it weren't so sad, but you know, the writing is just incredible. Like the, the minutia of life, like for Anna and for, for Ruth afterwards, you know, after the, the pregnancies had not become viable, the pregnancies were where, where the baby was lost, just like the minutia of life and the, you know, the clinicalness, if that's the word, the clinicalness of the, of the, of the doctor and, you know, Anna notes sometimes like, oh man, they, they definitely seem to be reading from the same manual and didn't hate it. Like, it wasn't like, oh, this is not genuine. It's like, I, I kind of appreciate it. Right. And just, you know, things like what music do you want to have playing and, and all those yeah. things were just really moving and, um, and just, again, empathy may not be possible for a lot of us, but sympathy brings us closer for sure. Yeah. It's again, that idea that there's no villains in this. Mm-hmm story that you know nothing none of the losses were caused by anything right other than just really it happens you know Mm -hmm. it's life unfortunately um for some of us and I I was so interested in that story of the mother because my mother had a very similar Mm. loss we both had late-term abortions of very wanted babies because of heart defects Mm. uh, which is just the odds of that are extremely slim. Oh, I bet. God. And it was not a related genetic. It wasn't like, you know, the, the gene of for my mother's baby was related to mine. It was freak uh-huh. coincidence. Um, and as I was going through my own loss, um, I was so interested in just, yeah, like the dailiness of yeah. how do you like put one foot in front of the other and mm-hmm. like, and then think about getting pregnant again, because you still want the baby right. um, and being pregnant after loss is a whole other deal. Um, 
I mean, I was already anxious. So then I was like really, really anxious, extremely mm. anxious for my, ended up being my third pregnancy. Cause I lost another one in the middle. Mm. Um, but that is what so many people go through in their own way. Like, you know, that loss is pretty right. unique, you know, rare, but like some sort of rupture, even if it's not a loss, but like a breakup or um, a change of circumstance or something that makes the family that you imagine not being the one that actually is created, I think happens to virtually all of us on some level. And I had no appreciation before I tried to get pregnant um, of what goes into making a family. Hmm. Just, I mean, when people tell the story, they often kind of skip over that. They're like, and then I had kids. Yes. And then when you're having kids, you're like, but wait, slow down, zoom in uh-huh. really close. Like, how did you conceive? How long did you try? How hard mm-hmm. was it to wait? Like, what was, you know, and you, I just got really into those. And then when you have a loss, like, okay, what do you do when your milk comes in? How did you, what did you do with the, did you have a ceremony? Like that, those kinds of details become so much more important. Yeah. Definitely. And, and so, you know, that, that, I mean, even, you know, you even mentioned like um, the narrator, like when, you know, she's watching like a Thor movie the the day okay. night out after, you know, and just like so specific. And like you talk about just that minutia, the banality of it all is, um, is very moving because, because it's so commonplace because it's so unemotional, just watching a TV show you know, makes yeah. it so much, so much more understatement, you know? Yeah. And that, and yet I feel like Marvel, it does this to people. I mean, there's a lot of critiques you could write about Marvel and I, there could be lots of books written about ways in which they don't stand up to standards, but uh, (laughs) I find them so moving. I cry Mm. in every single one. I just watched Mm. Black Panther 2. I had to wait until it came out on Disney plus. And I was, I was sobbing like Uh, opening credits, you know, like immediately. uh... (laughs) Does it does it reference Chadwick Boseman? Oh well, there's that, but that just yeah. something about them. Mm. Um, they just like tap into something for so many of us hmm. uh, that is really. I think that's why they're so successful, uh-huh. even if it's like in this really heavy-handed way. Sure. Sometimes, like I can't. I don't think I've made it through one movie without crying. Wow! Even like Ant Man, wow. you know. <laughs> you should be an inf- you should be an influencer. For, uh, for, for Marvel, uh, I don't. I, well, the thing is, I'm also like have critiques, you know, about some like okay. representation stuff. So I'm not like 100 percent behind everything yeah. they do. I'm I'm a puddle for every movie. Oh man! And after we had our loss, we watched all these Marvel movies, thinking, "Oh, this will be a good escape." I just want to watch this action. Yeah, movie. exactly. I think of them as escapes. No, huh? Yeah, but I was like, but uh, there's death and loss, and ah, uh, yeah, you can't escape it. Oh man. So the next chapter, the next part is, is Mari Soul or Mary Soul. And, you know, so Anna, I mean, you talk about some of the minutia. Like th- this is not minutia, but like the, what do you do? This is like the expected due date of the baby she lost. And she has a very caring, loving husband, but she, she decides, Hey, I want to, I need to get away. So Joshua tree for those who know SoCal and, you know, it's definitely very much of a getaway place. And she's at a bar and she meets Mary Soul and she hears, she hears her story. And as a great listener, you know, 
<laughs> double meaning there, maybe, you know, Anna <laughs> is a great listener. She gets Mary Swell's story and Mary Swell's artsy. She's probably what, like mid forties or so at the, when she's yeah, at the I, I had to do the math older. at some point, but yeah, I think like 45 ish. Yeah. And she talks about how she in a way had a baby, but not. And, you know, we find out about her going to Maine, her, her she was escaping as well. Escape sounds like it's a negative thing, but her father had had died by suicide. Mm-hmm. She's 19, 20 years old, and she goes to to Maine, kind of like on a not kind of like on spur of the moment, sees a little flyer. Remember the days of flyers before like everything was electronic? I, and, right? I had to rewrite that because I just had everything on the internet. And then I was like, uh-huh. oh, right. like I don't remember what year, but that's no Craigslist. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so she's with sorry, remind me of the the couple, is it George and Ellen? Uh, Ellen, yeah. Right. And Ellen's she she's drawn to Ellen. Ellen's a little bit younger than George. They're both very nice people. George is, you know, losing a lot of his faculties as an artist, but she's kind of like his what's the word? Not novice. Isn't it like a like a apprentice, uh, okay. I guess? Well, yeah, she's like his assistant. She does some right. of the fine motor drawing because right. he can't do right. it anymore. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and and it's very much in the middle of nowhere, you know, it's art, art, art. You you don't you talk to one or two people a day. If you know at first she wasn't talking to Ellen a lot, not, not out of any animosity, but they have small meals. It's in many ways is what she needed to get away and you know really be an artist. I want I'm interested in her infatuation with Ellen. I mean, is this like is this like a like a lust thing? Is this just like yeah, where that infatuation comes from? As well as like how much of that has to do with her age? How how much of just her whole experience had to do with her age and kind of being I guess naive to the world? Yeah, I mean, I think all all of it. Um, she's quite vulnerable when she arrives there and is really looking for, I think, care and stability of any kind. Yeah, and they give her that, or the the illusion mm-hmm. of that, and her vulnerability is felt by both of George and Ellen, and they react to it differently. My, you know, George takes her is senses that she has nowhere to go and so hires her it's not like she's not qualified but definitely takes that into account I think by hiring her like to start immediately mm-hmm. <laughs> um and the Ellen character to me is really complicated I have complicated feelings toward her because she senses Marisol's vulnerability as well and her feelings that I think uh Marisol's even a little bit unsure about how much of this is like I'm infatuated with her as a person and also maybe have a crush on her and sexual feelings toward Mm -hmm. her because it's unclear what Ellen's giving her too. So there's a lot of kind of questionable energy Mm -hmm. between them, but Ellen sees an opportunity for herself and Marisol's vulnerability. Um, There are lots of spoilers in this interview, just so (laughs) people are aware at this point, (laughs) but um, she want I felt Ellen really, really wants a baby. She's never been pregnant. She's been trying to be pregnant for many, many, many years. And I felt a really renewed empathy for that feeling mm. and felt like there are lengths that one might go to get that, that I wouldn't be able to embody before knowing what that felt like to want something so badly that you would do some questionable things to get it. Um, And I was also really interested in that 
chapter, uh, in exp which I wrote after the loss completely, um, in what it means to be kind of a mother or like have entered a maternal place partially, um, cause, which I had felt like I had, I felt like I had been a mother, but then I had no child. So I was never really sure what to say when people were like, is this your first or, mm. you know, that it was such a, I had a long answer yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like any question like that. And Marisol also does, you know, she is in some ways a mother, but also it depends who you ask and it depends how you tell the story. Right. Right. Do you feel like Ellen is a manipulator? I think, I don't think she's evil. I don't think anyone's evil in this book, but I think she has an agenda. Yeah, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think she is she calculated, do you think? Or do you think it's kind of like as it comes she steps in? I I like to think of her as a little calculated but not like I feel like if Marisol really wasn't into the idea, she would have backed mm -hmm. off. Like I I want to give her some credit. Um yeah. but she she does kind of sow the the seeds. Yeah. For this exchange and um I think maybe could have gone through greater lengths to make sure Marisol like fully understood what this process was, mm. paid her more, um, you know, mm. been a little bit more fair to her yeah. right. in the process. Yeah. Like I said, I have, I have complicated feelings toward her. I was but, afraid I would become her. <laughs> uh, <huh>. <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, there's a really, there's a really nice, nice is is a generic term but a nice you know scene with like the real platonic um connection that marisol and, and anna make you mm. know at the bar and, and you know afterwards and all that and also anna really realizing like hey i gotta really i wish i would have had someone here to share this with particularly isaac her husband but marisol was pretty was 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 a really good second prize if you will second place you know mm. maybe that's what she she needed on that particular night we're not going to spoil too much. The last the last chapter is summer, and it's in Tahoe, in Northern California. We're talking about maybe a couple Sacramento shout outs and you know, <laughs> California shout outs, but but just this whole idea of like you know what 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 now um, for Anna? Um, her sister is has given birth. Her sister has a little one, mm -hmm. and you know you write so well about just the feelings of Anna. Like what what do you say when you see the little one? Because you're so 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 happy. But you're also, I'm sure, thinking of like that, you know, thinking that could have been mine or, you know, right, and all right. of those things. And and of course, there's that complicated relationship with her sister um, as well. But just like this whole book, like it doesn't, there's nothing like cheesy or Mickey Mousey, but there are some, there's some real joy. There's some real sadness. And yeah, you know, we may have given a couple of spoilers, but it's like just the the whole is so much more than the parts. Like I'm so impressed about how you made it all come together. And, um, you know, these, these stories that seem to be disparate, they have, they have a through line that, you know, again, it's not an obvious through line for some of them. Um, but there's just so much connection that it really comes together. And, and I, I'll have to say it again. The part is, is so much more than the whole is so much more than the part. Did I say that right? The first time? <laughs> That's what I meant to say. I don't know, but I, I felt what you meant and, okay. and thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would love to maybe end by asking some of the really cool feedback you've gotten from readers? Mm. Um, I've been really touched by the responses from people who I, who I know and who I don't know, like people yeah. in my life who had 
it really resonated with that I wouldn't I would never imagined you know it's funny who you who you connect with and who you don't when you start sharing stories like this um my my favorite thing is when I hear people saying that it it made them have conversations with their friends or their, their sisters or their their parents their mothers that they hadn't had before around these things and that is like just makes me feel I bet like I did I did I wanted it to not be the end of a, a conversation around mm-hmm. any of things things because I feel like people do in the right context like want to talk about them and want to share their stories and we share our stories so much more easily when we have received a story no um uh so I hoped that in sharing this book which includes you know my story that other people would feel permission to talk about it so I mean my friend was told me that she read it and she gave it to her mom and they talked about she said the book uh for like three hours but it was clear that they talked about the book for like five minutes and then just talked about each other's like uh, her mother's story and her parents' story that she had never heard before. And that's, I want my book to just like help get them there and then get out of the way and let them talk. Yeah. Great characters. um, Really interesting characters. You know, the, 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 the Corey story, you know, page Turner novella, like soap opera style, Mm -hmm. you know, but also just like a really important book because I don't think there've been a lot of books written about the subject matter. Right. I mean, in, in the way that you did. I I wanted to read them desperately and I couldn't there you go. find them. I'm sure there, there are, but I, I couldn't find them. Right. What's what's that what's that that expression about, you know, write the book that you want to read? To, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's it. what yeah. this that's what this was for me. Yeah. Well, any ideas about what's coming next? I know you've, you know, hey, you wrote a great book and maybe you're just like, oh, I'm gonna take a break, but are you working on anything <laughs> else? Um, any future projects that you can you can want to share? Yes, I'm I would say not almost done, but I can see the finish. About the Marvel era. universe? No. Of, <laughs> yeah, I write for Marvel now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, if I did, I'd have like so much more money. Yeah. Uh, I I think I'm almost done-ish with my next thing. I thought that I would finish The Long Answer, which happened two weeks before I gave birth, by the way. Whoa. So I thought, okay, I'm going to finish this book, have a baby, take a break, be a mom. Um. And that did not happen. I felt like I wanted to write more than ever, which was deeply mm. uncomfortable because I had no time to do it. And I was so yeah. tired. Uh, so that part of me did not quiet down at all. It just got mm. a lot louder. So mm. I've been writing, you know, unevenly when I can for the past mm. two years, but I will have something about family stories and family secrets and early motherhood stuff coming cool at some point cool cool <laughs> cryptic enough but also uh intriguing enough yeah i like it. <laughs> i like it. well again thanks so much i mean the the book is you can talk about is incredibly personal and thank you for sharing your story thank you for sharing that book and just the rationale behind it and um it's really cool to talk to you in your lab i don't know if that's literally your lab but just uh talk to you about the book and you know the thought thought behind it and um like i said for those who are listening it's uh, a great read it's a it's a must read it's so important and it's about something that's so common right yeah unfortunately unfortunately 
Thank you so much for having me. I really, it's an honor to be able to talk about it with someone who, who read it so carefully and with such attention that just, it feels nice as the writer. Thank you. Oh, so, so appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure today to speak with Anna Hoagland for episode 165. Continue good luck to her with her writing. And so looking forward to reading the next and the next and the next. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. And Anna, you're on just Instagram, right? I'm on just Instagram. It's all I can handle, but it's Anna, Anna, Anna writes in Vermont. Anna writes in Vermont. You are so smart to do that. (laughs) You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills at Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. Both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 166 with Kai Harris, who's a writer and educator from Detroit, Michigan. She uses her voice to uplift the Black community through realistic fiction centered on the Black experience. And she's the author of What the Fireflies Knew, the first fiction title from Tiny Reparations book. She is an assistant professor of creative writing at Santa Clara University. Go Broncos! This episode will air on Valentine's Day, February 14th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Anna Hoagland, whose work, like the long answer, gives you chills at will.